Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you guys are doing well. Everybody seems to be doing well. I think we're doing well. Okay, guys, we're gonna we're going to be doing a Q and A this morning, as we um, as we said last week and a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you should have received a card on your way in. If you have a question and you don't want your name attached to it, that's fine. You can fill out that question and then you can wave it in the air or maybe you can uh, uh, sneak it over to Mark or to uh, Ethan and, and they will shuffle them up and give them to us. Um, but if you're bold enough and you're willing to ask a question, raise your hand and uh, Ethan's going to bring that microphone around. Here's what I want you to know, and, and we couldn't have asked, I couldn't have asked for a better uh, prayer uh, to start this off. Adam prayed that, that we would ask questions from a place of need or a place of really seeking, and that we would ask those questions under the knowledge that this is a safe place to ask those questions, because it's a place to grow and to learn. Um, I shared this a couple of weeks ago. We want to be a church that is identified by what we would call philia sophia, which is a a love for knowledge, a love for wisdom, right? We want to be those people. But we don't want to be a people that are philia nikea, which is just a people loving victory or loving to be right all the time. We're searching for the truth. We're searching for answers. And we're, we're hungry for those answers. Um, with me today is Mr. Dwayne Adams, and uh, Dwayne, you can kind of introduce yourself and give a little bit of your educational background. I just want everybody to know what they're up against today. No, <laughs> I want them to know who you are, so you a can... A little bit of my ignorance. Th- yes. Well, I'm Dwayne Adams, and um, I, I grew up between Loveland and Goshen a long time ago, and uh, went to college in Kalamazoo, Michigan. I was not a believer uh, growing up. Uh, my family was divorced uh, when I was a ten, uh, in 10th grade, a whole lot of mess, and um, became a Christian uh, w- when I was in business running a fitness center, I have to take that by faith, that was a long time ago, um, <laughs> in West Michigan, and uh, went from there to um, Dallas Theological Seminary, uh, where I earned my master's degree in uh, Old Testament studies in Hebrew, and um, then I earned a PhD in New Testament studies in Greek. A specialty in Luke Acts. I taught Hebrew for 10 years at uh, Cornerstone University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And I still teach grad school classes online in New Testament for Liberty uh, School of Divinity online. So, and I sell uh, Hondas to make enough money to pay all the other my bills. So uh, that's, I'm, I'm, so I'm, I'm a, uh, I'm a cosmopolitan old guy. So right. here we are. So, and so, it, by the way, thrown in there in the midst of that, there was a, uh, a singles ministry of eight years and a mega church in Dallas and a senior pastorate of almost seven years. So uh, ministry, uh, teaching at the university for 10 years. So uh, pretty much of a mix of, uh, of ministry. Very so. Cool. so if you need answers on Hebrew or a Honda, you got it. There you so go. anyway, it's really yeah, important. I do so. speak Honda. <laughs> Hebrew and Honda. So guys, uh, we're just going to go ahead and open this up and see what you guys want to talk about this morning. So if you have a question, shoot your hand up and we will have a microphone brought to you. There we go. We've got one over here. I'm going to start out with a joke that Mark just told. Oh, good. Were they all in one accord? Oh my gosh. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's, it's, 
Were they all in one accord? People, some people don't even know that Honda sells Accords. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, so, okay. Go for it. My question is really not to put you on the spot, but to bring out the fact that we need to be thinking this way. Uh, you brought up uh, in one of the messages about in one chapter there was a pattern of seven in the language. Sure. Which language, Hebrew or English? Yeah, so the, the pattern of sevens is actually originally in the Hebrew, and it becomes slightly um, difficult to see in the English. This is one of the, and Dwayne's going to speak to this, uh, I think, in, a, in a, a fuller way, but this is one of the challenges with English translations. I was talking to Curtis uh, like week or week one or week two of this series, and, and he pushed on me to say, you know, I just want to remind you that, that sometimes the way you're, you're talking about English translations, it's almost like you don't have any high view of English translations. I, 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 don't, I don't mind English translations, um, obviously. I need them. <laughs> um, but the thing that I want to caution all the church on is resting in the English to find your answers when those things were derived from an original language. And there's reasons why we have different translations, whether it's because we want a word-for-word -word translation or we want a thought-for-thought. -thought. Even word-for-word -word translations can't accomplish the goal the way they want to. Um, so I, I do dog a little bit on English translations because, uh, as I said in the week that you're referring to, Many times, uh, translation gets mixed with interpretation, and that becomes the problem, right? But to answer your question, <clears throat> at least in brief, those patterns of seven are found in the original language, and they get a slight bit lost in the English. I think that's a good way of describing it. Is that, um, remember, Genesis 1, 1 through chapter 2, verse 3 is a unit. And it begins actually uh, both Genesis, but also remember, and this is extremely important to remember, uh, Genesis actually is a large prologue to the Exodus. How, where do we end up at the end of uh, Genesis physically? Where are we? We're in Egypt. So Genesis is really how in the world do we get to e Egypt and how in the world do we get to the promised land that God promised Abraham? We also have to remember, um, and Nathan and I have talked about this a lot, that the narrative audience, remember when you're reading something, and he's mentioned this, and this is a wonderful one to remember, um, this is written for us, but not to us. And the question we always have to ask when we're reading something is who was the original narrative audience? To whom was this addressed first? Now think about this. No one was there in Genesis 1 but God. All right? But on the other end, Deuteronomy, who's getting all this material? It's not those who had escaped Egypt. They're all dead in the wilderness. It's their kids. It's the second generation of those who have survived the um, Exodus event and were born and now are ready to go in to take Jericho, take the promised land, the land promised to Abraham. Does that make sense so far? This is really critical because the issue is what does Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, 
what does that communicate to that audience? So far, so good? This is critically important. So when you read Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, and there are great commentaries out there. Commentaries are just like tools. My wife and I just uh, organized our garage. And um, <laughs> wonderful, we had fun. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> But we, had, we used different tools for the job. Okay, we used um, a screwdriver, we used a hammer, we used uh, different tools. Commentaries are simply tools, guys. That's all they are. They're simply tools to help you read the text well. Um, well, here back to the number game. Our time is limited. If you read the Hebrew text, the first verse has how many Hebrew words? Seven. Second verse has how many Hebrew words? No, no. Two times seven. Fourteen, yeah. Elohim, the name God, how many times? Thirty-five times. Five times seven. My point is, and that's just a, a tip of the iceberg, and you can read uh, Umberto Cusudo or Nam Sarna, who will lay all this out for you in detail. The point is, when Moses is writing this, the readers are going, wow, wow, wow. And when you compare this to the ancient uh, uh, other texts, cosmogenies and uh, organizational stories, it's very clear that Al Elohim all by himself is the elevated sovereign king creator and the sole one that deserves honor and respect. And we can talk more about that. But the number, you asked about the number. It's in Hebrew. It's in Hebrew. And anyone who reads the Hebrew text, and unfortunately, it's hard to translate that, those number things into an English interpretation. The best translation can't do that. The best translation cannot translate that. But a good commentary can tell you, oh, by the way, that's what happened. And now you can go, oh, cool. Oh, yeah. I think, Mark, it's, it's so important because this is, this again is, illustrative of, of the English and the complications with it, uh, when you have a world that uh, sees numbers and sees pictures the way they did, to have it in English and to have that lost, we would never understand that. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We would never get there because we don't see that in number of words, right? And so it's really... This is, these are small reasons why I, I'm, I'm challenged by English translations and why it's been so refreshing for me, uh, currently finishing up a master's in New Testament theology. As I'm finishing that up, it's just fascinating to see these discoveries that have always been there. They're just, they're just new to many audiences. So, another question. Yes, ma'am. We're going to have the microphone brought to you. Last week, you ended your, I think, at the end of your teaching last week, you mentioned a word that I just picked up right at the end. You, was it the word democrate? Uh, a democratized. But, so we're talking a democracy. And God's image being democratized is that he has given that image 
to everyone, okay. right? So it's like spread out to the whole world. Okay. And yeah. well, after I thought about that, yeah. um, I didn't, of course, I was thinking democracy, democracy, sure. Democrat, you know, those words yeah. that we think about. But the question that I then thought about was, um, you know, God gave dominion to Adam. Yes. Um, and then he gave, you know, with Adam, they kind of blew it. And then <laughs> kind of <laughs> kind of blew it. Then to Abraham, yeah, he gave the same dominion. My question is this: Did God choose Israel to show the nations only the way of salvation, or to also bring God's kingdom government to the nations? So, yeah. and what would that have looked like if they hadn't blown it? So, did did God? use or plan to use Abraham and the Israelite people to bring his kingdom to the earth. Um, so yes, yes and no. And I think the reason why the answer is yes and no is um, yes, because this is a giant arc of a story. And Abraham was always the one through whom we would end out in Jesus and the church, right? It would always end this way. Um, no, in that they could not bring that kingdom without Christ, right? They, they couldn't, uh, no, no matter what Moses did, no matter what Abraham did, no matter what the people of Israel did, they would never have been able to spread the rule and the reign across the entire globe, right? We needed a new Adam for that, and that is where Jesus comes in. So again, know that they couldn't fulfill it, but yes, in the idea that that arc, that arc never was, I, I, think, I think we get this really messed up, where we think God made plan A, Adam. Oops, that screwed up. Plan B, Abraham. Oh, dang it, that didn't work. Plan C, Jesus. It was plan, it was, it was Adam. Adam screwed up, and the seed was always to come. The one who would strike the, the serpent on the head, right? It was always that. It's important. Um, great question, by the way. Um, the promise to Abraham, remember, in chapter 12 of Genesis have the word curse repeated beginning over and over again, beginning in chapter 3 of Genesis. We're not there yet, but just a little highlight here, of a preview. Um, curse comes there. Curse, 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 curse. We don't see it again until Genesis 12, where the term blessing is now back. You get this wonderful shock in the story. I'm not done. Blessing's back. But it's going to be through Abraham and his descendants that God's going to work this. He's not abandoned the planet. It's a fun thing because uh, you see several times in uh, the Genesis 1 to 11 story, um, you have God create, um, from in the midst of the chaos, he speaks and brings order and light and life. But then you see the human, I don't like the word fall, even though it's used very, very commonly theologically, Guys, it's really the great rebellion. Yes. It's the human rebellion. Humans choose side against the good God creator. They rebel. So remember, we are rebels at heart. That's who we are. And so we're not just getting tripped. We're actually, uh, we want our own way and we want it now. Okay? If you don't give it to me, I'm going to create my own. All right? Um, and what happens, though, in the flood story, you've got chaos return. 
and God bring life again. Babel, chaos back again. God comes back again to bring blessing in Genesis 12. You see, God's the one who keeps doing this redemption plan. But as uh, Nathan mentioned, in Genesis 3, uh, I don't want to steal his thunder for later, so, but the, um, the serpent story is extremely important because man was made from what? He was made from dust, afar in Hebrew. Why is that cool? Because when um, God curses the serpent, um, he says, from now on, you thought you were going to kill dust boy? You thought you were going to kill the dust boy afar. Guess what? You're going to be eating afar from now on to remind you <laughs> that it will be one of, a seed from this woman who will absolutely do you in. It's irony. It's money. It's mystery. We don't know. But here's the beginning of the crazy story that gets worked out. And then I love uh, the passion of the Christ to Mel Gibson. Our wonderful artistic moment when Christ comes, uh, Jesus steps up in the midst of the garden, you know, he's being tested and tempted. He steps up and he steps on the snake's head. I go, yes, Mel, you get it. You get it, Mel. Okay, you get this. Okay, that's a wonderful story. But here's the, uh, back to the Israel point. God's plan is not like ours. He chooses this little bitty country that you could drive from here to Tip City and be all the way across the country tiny country. Hills and mountains and rivers and all He chooses this to put his name on. Now what's going to happen here is he's going to say, this is going to be blessing central. This is going to be the light to the nations. I'm going to make this the light to which my name will be experienced. Now fast forward. You guys know how the story goes. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. Judah becomes the line of royalty. You see this in uh, Genesis 50. All right, we're going to have a king someday. All right, well, um, Judah has a, a descendant who ends up being David. He sits on the throne, all right? But the prophets show up and say, well, uh, well before we get there, Solomon. You remember the Solomon era, the first 20 years of Solomon's reign? That is amazing because it's the anointed of David through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Judah, David, the anointed, the Messiah, the Christ in Greek. And guess where Queen of Sheba goes? She goes all the way from her area right to Solomon for what? Wisdom. Chokmah. She's going to find out the wisdom of God. and She's going to learn about Yahweh. And by the way, there are no taxes. I mean, people are being blessed like crazy by Solomon because God is bringing money. It's like Switzerland. I mean, no one wants to fight them. And God's coffers, the money is flowing one directional from the nations into Jerusalem. Wow. This is the picture. But what's really clear is no human will actually qualify to fulfill God's promise. It will be a, a, decided, uh, a descendant of David, but that's where we're going to end up. The prophets, Isaiah gets really crazy because Isaiah starts talking about this uh, 
uh, one who's uh, Emmanuel. He starts expanding categories and going crazy stuff. And then Jesus of Nazareth shows up to show us what it's all supposed to be like. So anyway. That's awesome. That's a long answer. Sorry. That's awesome. I do like the, uh, just the focus on the democracy, uh, democratization of this whole concept because um, the way this light shines in the world is literally through each one of us, right? So um, he has made a kingdom of priests now. And it's an amazing idea and amazing responsibility that we have because we have to go and we have to be these lights so that if we, if we echo what Dwayne said, the world comes to us for wisdom. The world sees that light. They come to us. It's a similar picture of what we see in Solomon. It's just a beautiful thing to know that, and a, and a massively high responsibility that we are those people. Apparently, Miss Sivertson has a question. <laughs> I love it. She makes me so when happy. When you talked about um, in Genesis the um, significance of um, the numbers and then also that it was temple language. Yes. I did not come away with a clear understanding of why that is significant. That the the verbiage is temple language. Yeah. Will you speak to that? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Dwayne and I have talked a lot about this. So so we have to again remember who is receiving this message. And in in the message where I talked about temple language, I talked about uh, one scholar's interpretation of this, which was that they would have heard this uh, after they had assembled the text again post Babylon, and and they, you know, they would have had to hear an encouraging message uh, while they are or in Babylon while they are in captivity. Um, my view, and I, and I believe that Duane agrees with this, is it seems more accurate that this would have been the, the message that is given to the Israelites as they are coming out of Egypt, right? And so they, they're the ones who get this message. So we know the people group, and then we have this message where nobody was there, but God reveals it, and it's all this temple language after they had experienced the tabernacle. And what is God doing with the tabernacle? He is dwelling with his people. So they have just spent time in captivity. They've just spent time thinking that Ra and others are God, Baal and others are God. And, and so they're, they're, they're struggling with this in the idea that Yahweh maybe is not what he says he is, okay? And this also goes into a fun interpretation of Genesis 1 and then what we see in Genesis 2 is that we have this temple language that says, you know that tabernacle where God dwells? Here's what I want to encourage you people with, you Israelite people. This whole planet is your God's. He is dwelling here. He is winning here. He will not falter here. So don't worry. Nobody before you is God. Yahweh is God. And this is, this is fun in Genesis, and I can't remember, I believe it's verse 4 of chapter 2, where we first see Elohim Yahweh, right? Where in chapter 1, we see Elohim, 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 and it's just God, God, God. But then it's God, Yahweh. 
So who are we talking about that is Lord over all of this? Whose temple is the earth? It's Yahweh's temple. It's not just any God. And so it really, it serves two purposes to have temple language. Number one purpose is that it sets them in a state of mind that says all of this was uh, all of this was for a purpose, and they know that God is reigning. Yahweh is reigning, and he doesn't just reign locally. He reigns everywhere. That's number one. Number two, it is argued that it is a polemical concept as well with temple language, as well as the construction of the tabernacle itself is a polemical thing because the way Pharaoh went into war, the way the Egyptians went into war, they actually had a similar war tent and a similar structure to that war tent, in segmented in three segments. And they would put an image in that inner sanctum, right, if Pharaoh wasn't with them or if whatever. And they would put this image there. And the idea was he was always present. He was with them. Remember, kings at that time were sons of God or they were, they were like God, right? And so the image went with them. All of a sudden, Yahweh comes and says, construct the temple just like that, and I'm there. And I'm there, and they can take their little temple, they can take their little war tent, and throw it away, because they're not going to win against me. So it's just, there's a lot to that, but it tells those people, Yahweh's Lord of all, he's winning. I would say the, uh, the temple language, especially in one, it's actually all the way through chapter 2, but Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, um, a couple things to remember. One, it's not poetry but it is elevated uh, prose with extreme structural integrity. And what it does is shows who is indeed uh, enthroned in the cosmos, who is the ruler over the cosmos, who is the originator of the cosmos, I would argue. Remember, the, uh, uh, the Mesopotamian and Egyptian stories didn't really care about uh, where everything really began. It's really which gods in control. That was the real concern. The Enuma Elish does not really worry about who all the gods are. It assumes them. It's which one's number one. It's Marduk, and I need to worry about him. <laughs> you see, that's the, that's the whole point. Well, Genesis 1 makes it really clear. You don't have to worry about any supposed other God because there is no other God. In fact, uh, the things that you worship as deities, stars and suns and moons and things, they're just lights. This great God, Yahweh, Elohim, he just simply made them for whom? For the human. All this preparation in Genesis 1, guys, you've got to see this. We talked about democratization, which is a great question. Remember, in the ancient world, there was only one person in the entire country who had the divine image. He had a crown. That was it. It was the king. But this bold, wild, little ancient text called Genesis actually makes this crazy assertion that you're royalty. Whoa! And that that elevates us. Now we're still made out of dirt, so let's don't get too crazy here, or too cocky. But, but we're royal dirt, okay? We're animated by the power of God. We're animated by God's life himself. 
Every breath you and I take reminds us that we borrow it from him. He grants it to us, okay? But Genesis 1 elevates Yahweh Elohim as the sole creator. And here's the implication, because um, Nathan brought this out last week. Remember, one of the things about Genesis 1 and 2 is how it, it's echoed. The language is echoed again in the description of the tabernacle. Very specifically, you can look at good commentaries that just show you match-my-batch words. Very, and, and Moses is not trying to hide this. He wants you to catch it. He wants you to re- so he repeats it over and over and over again. He wants you to get it. He's not trying to, this is not mystery. This is not hidden truth. No, no, it's right there. He wants you to see it. But here's what's really, really fun. Remember, um, he places, uh, I think it's two, um, it'll come to me in a moment, uh, in the, the commands for the uh, human, I think it's 2.14, um, in the garden to, um, to uh, was it, work and keep, right, the garden? Well, the word work is avad in Hebrew, which means it's the primary word to serve God. Serve. And that's the way it's used in all the Exodus material, all the Leviticus material, all the tabernacle to serve him. The other word is shamar, keep the garden. Shamar is the primary word in the entire rest of the Pentateuch. After chapter 2, it's always meant to obey God. Now catch this, and uh, he and I talked about this a little bit before we talked with you all, but this raises the point of why Genesis 1 is so importantly elevating Yahweh Elohim and his sole role of creator. He has the right to rule over everything he's made. Everything exists by his own spoken word. Catch this. And he said, and it was. And he said, and it was. And he said, and it was. You're getting a pattern. Understand something. This is so cool. According to Moses writing to Israelites, don't you understand, Israelites? If you would simply keep his word, there is life in them. And so, any engineers in here? There's an engineer. A couple engineers, all right. Uh, no? Mark said, no, no, not me. <laughs> well, you know, a good engineer designs something, right? They design for something to work properly. And, and if it's done according to the engineer's design and plan, it works most effectively and most efficiently, right? That's the way an engineer works. Well, the Pentateuch is saying, wow, this sole creator made everything by his own word, humans, the land, all of it. And if human beings, and you can hear God's heart all the way through the Old Testament, I'm the engineer. I made all this. I made it because I love you. I made it because I want you to share in my domain and rule as kings and queens. But you simply are these really rebellious little jerks, and you don't have a tendency to obey and listen to me. You hear his heart. But Genesis 1 is really about he has the sole right as the sole creator to rule over everything he's made. And wisdom is doing that, doing what he said. I also love the fact that when we read in Genesis in in the seven days of creation, um, God is repeatedly saying, it is good, it is good, it is good. And I like to remind people that God is not stepping back and going, hey, that turned out all right. 
right? He's not, he's not surprised at his creation. If we use the engineer analogy, he literally is stepping back and saying, that's how my machine's supposed to work. That's how this is supposed to work. That's what good is. He's defining it for us, which is a beautiful thing. So good question, Tina. Next question. There we go. Texas Longhorn. <laughs> so my question is, why can't I take some things in the Bible literally? Like when he talks about the four corners in the earth and like the, the sun and the tent sure. rising out, why, what is that metaphorically pointing back to then if I, I can't take it literally? Yeah, this is a great question. Is there more to your question? Well, if you point back to, if, why do you take the seven-day creation literally? Right. Okay. That's a good, I wanted to know where you were aiming at. That's, right. That's perfect. <laughs> so uh, we'll, we'll deal with the first question first, and, and I know that Duane will have things to say on this one. Um, so this is one of the challenges of interpretation of the Bible and um, uh, explanation that goes into things, right? We all speak in... Uh, metaphors. We all do this. I would actually argue that, that we, can't, we can't not speak using metaphors because we have to liken things to other things. Um, so the metaphors used in the Bible, we have to discover them carefully. We've got to be very careful because at times people read things as literal when they were metaphor and they read things as metaphor when they were actually literal. And so we've got confusion there, okay? So when we talk about things like the four corners of the earth, the reason why we don't, we take that as metaphor is because now we look at observation, right? We use observation for that. Um, all the way back, and this is a fun thing to remember, all the way back, uh, gosh, 1,800 years ago, 1,700 years ago, we were having, uh, be based on observations of the patterns of the sun and the patterns of the stars and the patterns of planets, without our modern technology, we were coming up with the ideas of a heliocentric universe where we're rotating and spinning, right? All this stuff, and that around the sun. These ideas were coming way before we attempt to say things like, well, we went to space and looked back. So in that, we, see, we have observation and we have understanding that says, okay, there can't be four corners to the world. So that would be how we would interpret one metaphor, and we would, we, we would say that clearly is a metaphor. We also do this by just the repeated use in Scripture, right? We see Jesus say, I am the door, I am the way. He says, I am a gate. He says, okay, is Jesus... A hardwood object with a glass pane, right? No, of course not, right? But we know very well that he literally means he is the throughput to God. We know that he means that. If he says, I am a gate, we don't see Jesus as a picket fence, right? And this little gate. We just know that he is a way. He is the way into the pen, into the, the shepherd's, uh, you know, uh, pen. So, so we have to study metaphor well. We have to look at it well, and we've got to make sure that we're understanding it correctly. Now, that, that is a, a general idea for that. We'll, we'll stick with that first, and then we'll get to the seven days. What's your thoughts on metaphor versus literal? Anytime we read any literature or even have any conversation, there's normally a shared 
um, set of ideas and language. Okay? So for example, if I asked you, uh, uh, who are the Texas Aggies? Now, if you're a, a, a Longhorns fan, you might know who the Ag Aggies are. Uh, if you're just if you just got the T-shirt because Grandma gave it to you, you might know not know who right. the Aggies are. Okay, <laughs> right. sorry. Right. See, see, that, see. All of a sudden, so we're using a term, but our our context. Did I did I nail that? By the way. Yeah. Oh, oh, that's oh, it's literally oh, your oh, Grandma oh, who gave it to you. Oh, I love oh, this. Sweet. It's amazing. Oh, He's a prophet. Okay. Oh, anyway, <laughs> don't stone me, guys. Please. Sorry. Um, by the way, I think. Uh, did the Aggies win last night? I don't know. It was a close game when I was watching. Anyway, um, so my point is we share language, but if we have a term, all of a sudden we're sharing, but we don't share the language history or context, we can't understand what we're saying, right? But in the ancient world, you could normally tell when metaphor is metaphor, right? Um, uh, I am the door. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a metaphor, right? The challenge is in Genesis 1 is how do you read Genesis 1 in light of two things. One, how it's presented. Actually, three things. One, how it's presented there in the text. And you've got descriptors. Day and night. It was evening and morning, day one. Evening and morning, day two. Okay, so in other words, you've got some contextual thing that, hmm, i got to throw that in the mix. How in terms of understanding, right? The next thing you've got to think about is the fact is, who is this being written to? It's written to the Israelites who are, again, camped in Moab, the country Moab, getting ready to cross the Jordan River to take over Jericho. How would they have heard this? Well, they came out of an Egyptian culture uh, 400, well, let's see, 40 years earlier that have a, had a seven-day-a-week culture, too. A seven-day-a-week culture was normal. They experienced day and night as a normal part of their life pattern. And so you could argue that the, almost the only way you could imagine the Israelites hearing that text would be a normal seven-day-a-week experience. All right? The other thing is, if you read the Ten Commandments, one of the most important commandments in there is to keep the Sabbath. And so somehow that seven-day pattern becomes a part of their regular identity. And by the way, there's no other people in the universe, that, as far as I know. And you can correct me if you do the research. There is no people, Egyptian, Mesopotamian, Roman, Greek, no one out there who has a seven-day pattern where they actually celebrate and sanctify the seventh day in a religious way, in a, in a way including the animals, by the way. So my point is, is this making sense? In other words, when you read the text, you have to ask the question, what indicators is it giving you? Is it simply metaphor? Probably not. It's at least, at least to be understood in the context of the pattern of the people who are actually experiencing the text. Does that make sense? I, I, a little bit? So <laughs> let's, go, let's go a little bit further. So we, we, have to use our, we have to use our observations when metaphor is clearly metaphor. I am the door. That one makes perfect sense, right? When we get to Genesis and the seven days of creation, 
I look at it from Dwayne's second point, which is how the original hearers would have interpreted it, right? They, they, they assumed seven days and not a metaphor of what was going on. Now, I do want to throw this in there. It's a good challenge for everybody. It doesn't mean because they heard it that way and they would have assumed it that we're right, Okay? This is why in this whole creation debate and, con- and, and discussion, the important thing for us to remember is that we are, we are in love with wisdom. We want to figure out what it is that God has done. We want to understand how that applies to our life and what that does for us, right? That means we're willing to pivot and change if we've got, if we've got better answers, right? So what I'm getting at is they assumed the world was flat. They assumed this canopy above, right? As a matter of fact, one of the hardest pieces, and we're going to get to this in the second leg of, uh, of this Genesis series, one of the things that the original audience heard and understood was that there was a canopy of water above the heavens, they, they literally believed there was an ocean above the heavens. Well, is that there? No. We know that there's no ocean. There's no water up there, right? I mean, moisture, I don't know, but there, there is no water up there. So it's an interesting thing that we have to really wrestle with how we interpret it. They interpreted a lot of things assuming a literal explanation. And now observation says, oh, but that's not so right. But that should encourage you because it doesn't mean that our current observation is correct. It means that we're assuming things, we're looking at things, and we're doing what I, I've talked about many times, which is we're, we're doing a, a, an issue of what is most probable, right? We look at the facts, we look at the evidence, and we go, it seems most probable that what we're dealing with is seven literal days. That seems most probable. I'm open to anything in that. But back to metaphor, I think they didn't see it as metaphor. In Jesus' day when he said, I am the door, they clearly understood it as metaphor, right? So I hope that helps a little and bit. One final little comment related to this yeah. is we always have to ask this question as a, as a good reader. What question or questions <clears throat> is the writer really attempting to answer? Not the questions I want to require it to answer, but the questions that it actually is attempting to answer. That's really important because when we go to Genesis 1, we are very much in agreement that Genesis 1 and 2, the Israelites camped at Moab sharpening their swords, trying to go across the Jordan River to take over the land. They're not asking evolution questions. You see my point? They're simply not asking the question. Does that make sense to you? Um, so we, and what we have to really ask, and by the way, it has huge implications for science. Yes, it does. In fact, uh, we agree about this point. Genesis 1 takes an axe to the whole worldview called naturalism. It takes an axe to it. And if, I'd love to have a, if you want to buy the coffee, I'll be delighted to drink it. Right. That one, okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it takes an axe to it. But the creation-evolution debate, as important as it is, is not what Genesis 1 is actually attempting to address. Does that make sense? You know, that's all we're trying to say here. Yeah. Let's hear the text. And here, here's what's really fun. 
we're all attempting to hear God's word, right? We want to hear God speak through his word. And the question is, has science deafened us? Our wrestling match with science deafened us to the point that we actually cannot hear because we have not placed ourselves in the sandals, and I use that word very intentionally, of those Israelites to whom it was originally addressed. If we can do that, we're taking a 3,400-year journey back to get ourselves in the tents and say, Moses, tell us about God. Tell us about the God who rescued us. Tell us about this God. And Genesis will say, okay. That's beautiful. Okay, guys, we are out of time, but is, if there are any other questions, I want to encourage you to give them to me. I want to encourage you to send an email. You can send it at piercepointchurch at gmail.com. If you want to ask those questions in person, I'll sit down with you. I'll make sure that Dwayne sits down, too. <laughs> Sorry. We'll take a break from selling Hondas, and we'll sit down, and, uh, well, he will, um, and we'll, we'll sit down and have this conversation. Does that sound good to you guys? All of the things we're discovering, again, church, are, are really for a love of wisdom. We want to know what's right. As Dwayne beautifully put it, we want to hear God speak from his word. And number two... God's word will always prove true no matter what the world discovers. I promise you that. It is what we read and how we read it is, that is the challenge, right? And we've adjusted that and we've corrected over time and we need to correct all the time. But God's word will always prove to be true. I promise you that. Okay, guys, we're inviting the kids back in. We're going to turn this over for a time of communion. Would you guys give Dwayne a big hand?